Hey, I'm Hannah. I have the joy of sitting down with Aaron today. Um, Aaron is an MPP candidate and is a Pickering Fellow, which means he has committed to five years in the Foreign Service upon graduating. He's also doing research at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy on Electoral Reform. And before coming to HKS, he worked in the State Department doing research in China, Tokyo, and Korea. Welcome. I know very, very little about foreign policy and the Foreign Service, so I'm extremely excited. Great to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah. What brought you to the Kennedy School? So I came to the Kennedy School because I really wanted to look more systematically at human rights, you know, what works, what doesn't work, and how can we incorporate human rights values and human rights ideals into the U.S. foreign policy. The Kennedy School has the Carr Center, and I think that was what really drew me into it. Um, and along with that, I really like the idea of having a broader policy degree because I think foreign policy is closely interwoven with domestic politics and domestic issues abroad, um, as we have seen with the election of Donald Trump. So I really want to get a better understanding yeah. of how all the issues are connected. So was it Trump's election or was there like other things that got you initially interested in human rights and foreign policy in general? For me, I've always been interested in human rights. Um, so even though I was born in Los Angeles, I actually lived in Taiwan for 90 years okay. in my childhood. Um, so when I came back to the U.S. when I was 10, there were a lot of different barriers. And back then I wasn't out yet, so I was still kind of struggling with my sexual orientation, with my Christian belief. And all of that kind of struggles or like isolation has really made me realize that what I want to do is to help people who are the most marginalized, um, who don't have a voice in the system. Um, and to me, that's why I kind of want to do foreign service is yeah. because I want to be a public servant and serve the public. And I want to do that by helping countries communicate with each other so that we can better cooperate together. Yeah. Were, were you like aware of that? when you were moving from like back from Taiwan to the US like how was the foreign policy affecting just like your personal life and... yeah uh i wasn't super aware i mean like i'm sure you were young yeah 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 uh, foreign policy back then um but i think one thing i've always thought a lot about is taiwan is not recognized by yeah. the US or most other countries in the world so for me, that was really something to think about. Like, what does it mean to be a state? Mm. What does it mean to be internationally recognized? What is actually the value of democracy in our human rights decisions? So I think all of those things kind of play in the background as I got more interested in foreign affairs and foreign policy in my senior year of high school. Okay, cool. Yeah. Cool. So thinking about like the role of the U.S. in foreign policy, what do you think, do you think we're doing a good job right now? Or where are we failing? This could be Big question. a lot um, So I will say we shouldn't just oppose Trump on every single decision just because he's Trump. Like, I think Trump is really good at identifying problems mm -hmm. and issues. For example, there is 
a big issue with China and how we're going to engage with China in the future in terms of not only trade but how China is going to affect the liberal rule-based international system yeah. that we've set up and kind of what values are going to lead these international in- institutions going forward as China becomes more powerful. Um, so, you know, Trump identified a problem there. There's economic trade issues. Trump identified a problem with NATO, you know, mm-hmm. in a treaty alliance, in a multilateral organization. We need, there needs to be buy-in from all the stakeholders and all the parties involved or else there's going to be a free rider effect and that's right. going to erode the ability of the institution to to be effective. So he identifies these problems, but yeah. then he goes about, he tries to solve them in like the worst possible <laughs> ways, right? Like with China and trade, like, yes, we should address those issues, but we should address them with our allies. Like EU right. has said that they're interested in working with the U.S. on this issue. Japan and South Korea have been interested in working with the U.S. to address these trade issues with China. But what he does is call EU the enemy of the U.S., is to put tariffs on South Korea and Japan, and is to withdraw from TPP. If there's a problem with NATO and them getting to pay more, the solution is not actually, let's not uphold the mutual defense agreement. (laughs) You know, or like threaten to just like pull out of it completely. Like that doesn't that doesn't make sense, you know? So it's like, yes, the issues are there, but the way he goes about solving it is is completely, I think, erratic and irrational and like antithetical to what we believe in and harms our national interests. Yeah, for sure. I think along those lines you mentioned this idea of a liberal rules-based international order. So how how does the U.S. improve that liberal ethos in the rest of the world without being overly imposing and um, intervening where it's like not really our place? Yeah. Um, so that's that like liberal rules-based international order. That's something that commentators and analysts throw out all the time. And mm-hmm. I have yet to find a good article where it actually mm-hmm. lays out you gotta what write these it. <laughs> institutions are and yeah. what are we trying to do with it. So I would say what that means for me as an example is, say, the World Bank. And what China is doing right now is creating parallel institutions that are kind of reshaping the order of how we do development. Oh, So for example, the World Bank, you know, it gives out loans, it gives out these grants, but there are strings attached, and these are good strings because these are saying you need to improve your governance, you need to improve transparency yeah. um, within the government, and all sorts of different things that are good for the country so that this project is not just like a one-off project, but it actually helps sustain the economic development yeah. in that country. But what China is doing now is they have like one organization is the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, okay. where they're going to give out these loans with no strings attached. Yeah. And they're saying, we're just going to give it to you. Don't worry about all these other conditions. We're not like the Westerners or Americans. Uh, we're just going to give you money and you do what you want with it. There's no oversight. So for a less developed country, yes, that's very attractive, right? Um, yeah. There's no strings attached. But where is that money going? And how is it being mm. used? You know, if it yeah. further funds the 
rampant corruption in a country, like that's not necessarily good for the country. Um, and I think one reason why people are more worried about that now is because China is getting increasingly powerful yeah. economically, politically, and diplomatically. Yeah, so, so it's like yeah. a really interesting thing because I feel like there are sort of two narratives around those Chinese loans where I, a lot of people are accusing China of being neo-colonial in their interests in mm-hmm. providing those types of funds. Whereas other people who are maybe in countries that are receiving the funds are saying, well, no one else is giving us money, so we're going to take it, and it's it's a really good thing. Um, yeah, yeah, and I think I think time will tell how these projects play out, because there have been research saying that actually giving grants with no strings attached might actually be better. I'm skeptical of that view, but I, I think time will tell with that. Um, but I think this example speaks to the larger... Right to the original question of the liberal international order is that, you know, the U.S. use and the kind of the OECD Western world has been able to shape this order with our values. I would specify that, you know, it's not just our values, but like universal human rights Mm -hmm. values, values of freedom, of transparency, and all these different things. And I think what we're going to see now is that As China becomes more powerful, it now has the funding that we Mm. used to have in order to compete with us in these spaces. Right. So it's going to be, how is that going to affect the international order, given now we have a political system that has been able to be economically efficient and effective and successful without the political systems that we have enjoyed right that yeah. has election and democracy and accountability and rule of law yeah i mean what are your thoughts on how that plays out i don't know if you have any predictions or... yeah <laughs> yeah no predictions are always hard um i or, would i guess just how um if you, if you don't want to give any yeah. predictions then how does the u.s and other countries that sort of support that more liberal based order maintain their resilience in this new system yeah so i would say i think to that last your last statement there that's what we need to be doing like mm-hmm. you can't stop china from growing right. right like you can't stop china from being more integrated into right. the international economic system like everyone's dependent on china but china's also dependent on the world i think what we need to do is to be clear about our values, about what we're trying to do, and to be consistent with them. Mm -hmm. If we are the side that says, yes, we value human rights, we value of law, and we value freedom, then that needs to be applied consistently. Right. And that needs to be applied within our home countries too, Mm -hmm. so that we're not criticized for being hypocritical, so that we don't lose our credibility abroad. And we also need to think about, okay, China's getting stronger economically. How can we remain competitive? So going back to the example of aid, I think, you know, as someone who believes in free market and competition, I think it will be a competition. You know, like, are countries going to take our aid and our support where it's going to be, there are these strings attached, but we think it's going to be more sustainable, or are they going to take 
China's model and China's money and, you know, kind of deal with the consequences of that. You know, like an example is the, the debt trap that Sri Lanka is getting into where China loans Sri Lanka a ton of money, but now Sri Lanka is not being able to pay it back. So they actually loan China one of its ports for oh, like, I don't really? know how many years. It's like at least like a hundred years or something. So it's like now you're like essentially ceding parts of your territory and your location to Super China. interesting. Yeah, because you're stuck in this. So we'll see. But I think I think the focus should be on how can we improve yeah. and not on how we can contain China because yeah. I don't think we can contain China. Right. Um, and I think I share with what Joe Nye has been saying is that you can't stop. I, I'm not exactly sure if Joe Nye phrased it like this, but it's like we can't stop China from growing, but we can affect and shape the world in which China grows. Yeah, that, and that makes so much sense because I feel like if you're really cynical, you could kind of have this view that the United States like only wants to stop China from making those types of loans so that we can contain their power, but we have to remain really strong in that it's for upholding human rights mm-hmm. and liberal values in other places that yeah. really need it. Yeah, totally agree. So wh- how do you think the relationship between sort of like the average American and these types of foreign policies are? Because I feel like it is super abstract from our normal lives, so it's sort of hard to get people fired up about it. Yeah, so... I've been thinking a lot about this problem and it kind of started with we have these foreign policies that are very important to U.S. national security, to the livelihood of Americans. But Trump has been able to reverse them and to discard them and to do away with them with relative impunity. You know, he's not he's not getting there's no political cost, it seems to him doing these things. So then I started to think about, okay, if I'm trying to design a policy, I'm trying to design an institution, I want it to be resilient. Yeah. So that you can't just have a random person like Trump come in and throw everything apart. And then from there, I was like, if it needs to be resilient, that means it needs to have the support of the American people. Right. Because if you have the support of American people, you try to do something then it's it's really hard for you to do it because there's going to be a political cost to it. So then it goes to this problem of, okay, like, how do you get Americans to care about it? And I think with the election of Donald Trump, you see a lot of Americans saying, no, I don't want to deal with the outside world. I want to be better on our own. America first. (laughs) Yeah, America first. And then that sentiment. So then I was thinking, okay, is it a translation issue? Like, we're not tell we're not showing the average American why these policies are important? Like, is that Mm -hmm. us just needing to tell them why these things are important so they care more about it? Or is it that our foreign policy decisions have actually been for the elite and Mm -hmm. that our foreign policy has not actually benefited average Americans? And I don't know the answer to that. You know, Mm -hmm. like, I don't... I in, think, in what ways? In what ways has it benefited the elite? Yeah, and that's the question I think I've been exploring right now at the okay. Kennedy School. Is is it actually for the elite? Is that a foreign policy issue, or is it that our foreign engagements are good for our overall economy, and the problem is not a foreign policy issue? It's a tax system issue. It's that we've reaped all these benefits from abroad 
but they've actually only gone to these multinational corporations and to、mm. the very wealthy in the U.S. And what could solve this problem? What could make our foreign policy lift all boats? Is actually to have a more progressive tax system, so that in our efforts for you know more free trade around the world, to have where our export companies are getting richer and richer, are companies that you know have hurt from our foreign trade can be taken care of through、yeah. that. Redistribution of wealth and income. That that's really interesting on how we can link our domestic policy to foreign policy because they、mm-hmm. feel like they operate in such different spheres. Yeah, and the foreign policy is apparently something we think that we can just say like, don't deal with it.、Mm-hmm. Focus on domestic. But I think that that's just not the world that we live in anymore. Yeah, and you know we see so many of. These jobs at home being replaced by jobs from abroad, and you know it's really good for consumers because we're getting goods and services ch- more、mm-hmm. cheaply. But like we also need to make sure that these people who are getting their jobs this place are taken care of. You know, so we don't get something like a what we did in 2016, where there was a huge, you know, pop in a sense like populist backlash. Yeah, as they. Call it, but I think another thing I've been thinking about is that if a lot of our policies can be kind of hijacked by elites, like why、mm. not our foreign policy? Like, do、yeah. the average Americans actually have access to our foreign policy officials, where their voices can be no heard? No idea. Or is it that only lobbying groups or big corporations or these people who know how the system works in DC are those the people that? Are those the only people that can get access to foreign policy officials and shape their decisions?、Um, and some that's something I've been thinking a lot about too, because I look at all these foreign policy officials that I look up to,、um, that I aspire to be.、Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, what do they all have? They have a law degree from、mm-hmm. an Ivy League institution or an undergraduate degree from an Ivy League institution. They're probably Rhodes or Marshall, and they probably. Have families in D.C. or New York、um, or these urban cities, so it's like there might be a disconnect, you know, consciously、yeah. or unconsciously, between who our foreign policy officials are hearing from and who the average American is. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, like just thinking about rhetoric surrounding elections, especially state elections and gubernatorial elections,、mm-hmm. foreign policy just isn't something that comes up. And you know, I'm from Ohio, and I can't ever remember a time in which one of the major focuses for one of our state representatives or something was focused on foreign policy. So it's so abstracted from the constituencies. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's really true. But if you think about foreign policy, it deals with our defense spending. It deals with terrorism. You know, like our because our foreign policy. Decisions right, can lead、yeah. to yeah. So it's all these national security issues that are vitally important, but people it's so far、yeah. from people's everyday life yeah, that it's yeah. hard to connect it to. So I think right now what I stand is like it's both a translation issue and、mm-hmm. it's also an issue of our foreign policy not being not serving all、right. Americans.、Um, do you have any ideas on how to get? 
more average Americans engaged in foreign policy or how to improve outcomes for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I say average American just because I don't, I am not (laughs) eloquent enough to find a better word to describe. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's it's like totally legitimate. Yeah. Uh, But like, yeah, that's such a great point you raised. Like, I I can't ever remember uh, hearing anyone like running for office or getting excited about a policy and they're like, I promise if you elect me, like, I am going to stop the humanitarian crisis in, like, Bangladesh right now. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, definitely. Um, I think the way to do it is through recruitment. For example, the the Pickering program. Into the Foreign Service, into decision-making position. Not just in State Department, but in the U.S. Agency for International Development, in the National Security Council, in the Defense Department in our intelligence community. Like, I think they need to do a better job of hiring and of recruiting from all parts of the U.S. And that's what actually Pickering is. Pickering is a program where the applicants are on Pell Grant Mm -hmm. and the applicants are, have some sort of diverse perspective and experience that could help, you know, the Foreign Service improve in its foreign policy implementation and its representation abroad. So I think that's one place to start. I think the other place to start is exactly what Bill Burns, our former Deputy Secretary of State, is doing. Um, He recently actually just published a book called The Back Channel, where he explains why diplomacy is so important Mm -hmm. in safeguarding the United States and protecting our citizens. So I think you know, the explaining issue and the the explaining component, but also the, we just need to get more diverse voices into the foreign policy apparatus. And just when you were saying that, it really makes me think that the only time it seems like there's a lot of national interest in foreign policy is like when we're at war. Yeah. Um, How do we get the focus and like a reestablishment of that diplomacy as the primary tool and like the primary thing that we think about when we think about foreign policy? Great question. (laughs) I am not sure. I think that diplomacy needs to be our first line of defense Mm -hmm. before we resort to economic sanctions or military action. And I think all those are tools of diplomacy, but I think diplomacy needs to come first. I think what happened in the U.S. is that after 9-11 is switch. And what I mean by that is suddenly Defense Department and these more hard power tools are what we use first before we use diplomacy. And I think our diplomacy in the U.S. is starting to atrophy. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to make a concerted effort to bring it back. And an example of this is at the Kennedy School or even among D.C., And even I think among people who think about foreign policy now, like when I say national security, the first thing people think of is defense. Yeah. Right. That's the first thing that's the first thing you think about. Yeah. And the second one may be intelligence. I was thinking drones. Like that's where my mind went. (laughs) Yeah. But people don't think about diplomacy or what we can or communication or cooperation. Mm -hmm. And those should be the first. Right. Right. Yeah. Like, those are the more cost-effective ways, in my opinion. Those are the more peaceful ways. 
and those are and we have a lot of people who can do that but the focus has not been on national security uh, on, on defense and it's kind of oh we got a lot of money in defense like let's just do this is let's just do that you know yeah. like as as if that's our only tool yeah, and then we keep putting more the spending in the yeah, military. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just increasing it. And, and my thing snowballs. is, let's do diplomacy first. Let's figure out a way to negotiate, to talk about this, to see how we can get out of this where it's mutually beneficial to all parties right. involved and where it's cost effective and efficient before we go on to the airstrikes and the drone yeah. attacks <laughs> and the. Which the, all those things are tools of american engagements abroad but i i think the i think there needs to be a yeah. flip and the and a change in which one comes first i imagine the u.s sets the tone internationally for whether it's diplomacy or more hard power um do you think we've gone too far or do you think we can pull it back in and like reestablish? diplomacy as the go-to strategy like i sort of cynically um would just wonder if we've been doing this like threatening thing for too long (laughs) yeah yeah and i think that speaks to the rise of china too in 2008 when the u.s told china hey you need to do this and this and this to help the world get out of the recession china said okay yeah you know, we're like, we'll like, we'll still follow your lead. Okay. I don't think we can do that anymore. I don't think we can be like, China, we need you to do this and this and this. And China would be like, why? Like, <laughs> why do I need to listen to you? And as the world becomes what they call more flattened, where the powers become more equal, and when you have the rise of India and China and resurgence of Russia, yeah. and then we'll see how EU does. <laughs> um, you know, I think we need to be smart about this because we can't just be the hegemon going around telling people yeah. what to do. I think we have to adroitly deal with this. And I think that comes to diplomacy. Like, how do we use all of our tools, all of our connections at network? Yeah to achieve U.S. national security and to protect American interests and American citizens. So I definitely agree with you. I think that's where the U.S. I, I don't know go. that's my position. No, no, no. no. Um, <laughs> but I don't know how we can get there. I just see so much of the military-industrial complex pushing yeah. this and their influence their lobbying power, how they influence our Congress members and even our think tanks in yeah. DC. So I don't know. Hopefully okay. <laughs> we can figure it out in our lifetime. <laughs> are are there ways that we could be helping the State Department and helping our diplomats achieve those outcomes better? I think first is knowledge promotion mm-hmm. of what does a diplomat actually do? There is some of the, you go to a nice reception. I'm like, what does a diplomat do? Yeah, yeah, and you, you know, eat yummy food and you chat with really cool people who are also, you know, important. But that's only like a very small part of the job. A diplomat's job is to make sure Americans are safe abroad. If you get into legal trouble, like we're Mm -hmm. there to make sure that you're rights are secure. We're the ones talking to 
the foreign officials talking to the civil societies abroad so that we have a very, very good picture of right. what it is a foreign country is doing so that the decision makers in D.C. will know what to do. Like, we are the ones engaging communities abroad to show them what the U.S. is really about, to show them what our values are and how we can cooperate through these public diplomacy engagements. Right. You know, so it's like there's so much that a diplomat does. And I think it's also on the State Department and on the Foreign Service officers to better explain that to yeah. the U.S. public. I think that's one. And I think especially in the age of the Trump presidency, I think a lot of people are shying away from yeah. being a diplomat or being in the State Department because of how much he has insulted it or ignored yeah. it. So I think the second thing the public can do is like get involved, like apply yeah. for the State Department, apply to be a diplomat. Like what an honor it is to be abroad and say that you represent your country. Like that is such a privilege yeah. and honor. Um, and it's a really cool profession. Like, I think, I think really smart and really good and really talented people, like, I, I think everyone should apply because this yeah. is a really cool career and you're, like, one of the cool... You're doing, like, this is one of the coolest ways to do public service. And then I think the third thing is that, like, just give diplomats more respect. You know, they are people serving in Afghanistan, in Sudan, in Iraq, like they are going to these very, very dangerous places to make sure that U.S. interests are secure, to make sure that Americans at home are safe. You know, like, I would say, like, as you would thank a military person for their service, like, thank a diplomat for their service, because they're going to very difficult, harsh situations, and a lot of times without their families as well. But what do I know? <laughs> no, you. Well, you like you've been you've been in the State Department, um, a, a lot of different places in Asia already. Um, how how do you think we're doing? And like, have have you felt that there's been a change in diplomatic relationships with East Asian countries since you started, um, like throughout the era of Trump? I think so. I think the first one is TPP. That's not necessarily Trump. I think. Hillary Clinton would have had to deal with it too because domestically it was very, I think, bipartisanly against TPP. But I think with the trans uh, TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, I think our Asian allies are starting to see, oh no, the U.S. might not actually be as reliable as before. And then I think Trump has only exacerbated that view mm -hmm. where they see U.S. as potentially unreliable, as erratic, uh, and you, you can see places like South Korea and Japan warming up to China uh, because they're trying to hedge their bets, right? And it's like the U.S. is questioning whether they should support NATO or questioning whether they should have military bases in South Korea and Japan and questioning whether we'll come to these countries' aid if they were ever yeah. attacked. And these are treaties that we've signed and ratified. So if they're questioning that, the U.S. trust yeah. abroad has gone way down. Our credibility has gone way down because of Trump. And countries are doing exactly what Trump is saying, like Trump is warning, uh, warning about, which is that 
China is increasing in its influence、yeah. and power, and trying to be a regional、uh, dominant power. It's like our actions are helping them do that. I, I wanted to ask you about this because I can't. Like I don't. I always was wondering if I was just missing something. But it's like if we're worried about China becoming a regional hegemon and being expansionist and all of this stuff. Why in the world would we be alienating Japan、yeah. and South Korea? Yeah, you know those are like the two big checks on China. I, I was like, I must be missing something. Yeah,、over. and I mean you can throw like Philippines in、yeah. there too, and you know a lot of these other countries. Um, I think it comes down. Is there to, any internal logic in that? I think <laughs> it comes down to Trump. I think I mean for him, America first means America only in、yeah. a sense. You know he doesn't think. The United States needs anyone else to achieve its objectives, and that is just not—he's not observing reality <laughs> when he thinks about these things. Like other countries are getting stronger. Like what country in relative good time power? Being, being isolationist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think most Democrats and probably a lot of Republicans are saying no. We need to go in together.、Mm-hmm. We need to get our regional allies so that we can address these issues with China. Together, but Trump is saying, "No, I'm going to go in alone, and I can do this." So, you know, we'll see. Like, if he can come up with, you know, if he can come out of this trade war with like a spectacular trade deal and put China in check, then we'll all be proven wrong. But I'm very skeptical、yeah. of that happening. And it, it is a hard trade-off between like, if we keep trading with China, we're going to be. Helping China, or as he describes it, letting China take advantage of us. But it's like we're getting a lot from China too. So how much are we willing to hamstring ourselves in order to hurt them a little yeah. bit? Yeah,、um, which just seems crazy. Yeah. So, where so, do you know where you're going to be in the Foreign Service? Not yet. Okay. Um, but my background is on East Asia and China,、yeah. and I speak Mandarin. Okay. So most likely they'll send me to China, which I'm super pumped about. Is there any chance they just like send you to like Sweden or oh, something? Oh yeah. Oh <laughs>、really? yeah. No, I mean, I think there's less of a chance of them sending me to Sweden and more of a chance they'll send me to, like Afghanistan or Iraq, or wherever they need. There's an Arabic. Yeah, I know that, but that's part of being in the foreign service. Yeah. It's called like they call it worldwide availability. Is that you go wherever the State Department and foreign service needs you the most because、yeah. this is service.、Mm-hmm. This is you're serving the American people. You're serving the government. You're serving and upholding the U.S. Constitution. Like,、yeah. this is what you need to do. So, no, it, I'd be happy to go. It really is like an amazing、yeah. uh, commitment to service. To get back, <laughs> to get back on our topic, I think one one of the other things that you mentioned you wanted to talk about was American lobbying groups in foreign countries. I don't know what that looks yeah, like. Yeah, that's kind of me thinking about lobbying groups in the U.S.、Um, that are. I would say have particular interests. So, one example is there is a Taiwan lobby, advocating for closer relations with the U.S. and Taiwan.、Mm-hmm. There's also a China lobby trying to make sure that the relationship between the two stays、uh, friendly for whatever reasons, or stay hostile for whatever reasons.、Mm-hmm. There is you can call it a Cuban lobby、mm-hmm. in. Florida, you know, advocating like a pretty strong like Israel for, lobby. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and that's the one that's been in the news lately、yeah. too. So it's 
kind of how do you like the United States is a place of diversity. We have people from all over the place, but then you also for someone like me or for someone like my parents, you also you know you come from. A different country, so you also have affinity to a different country. So, how do those groups shape U.S. foreign policy going forward? I think that's something I've been really interested、yeah. in.、Um, and you know, as the United States gets more and more diverse, which is you know a wonderful thing for our country, how does that affect our foreign policy? We have a lot of immigrants,、um, and that means we know a lot about the outside world. But that means we're Getting even closer to the outside world,、right. yeah, yeah, and I think that goes back to your point about, you know, just if there are lobbies and if some of them are stronger than others, it's like how are our politicians serving elites in one particular lobby over the interest of others,、um, regardless of whether it makes sense for the future of, yeah, our country, yeah, yeah, so. That's just something I've been yeah, thinking no, about. Yeah, I like, think that's a really great point. Since this week, so <laughs> stay tuned. <laughs> I, I feel like it's really interesting though because it does. It makes so much sense that the same sort of struggles we have with our domestic policy, we would have with foreign policy.、Um, and I, but I think that there is that divide in a lot of people's mind between the two, as if they're two completely separate spheres, and that、yeah. just can't be the case. Yeah. 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 So. Um, have you found anything particularly frustrating or particularly exciting about foreign service so far? I would say not foreign service or State Department, but more generally among the foreign affairs committee—not、yeah. committee, the community. Even here at the Kennedy School, a lot of people are interested in foreign policy because they like learning about they they like working on trade. Mm. Or like they like working on national security, or they like looking on like great power competition, or like politics, and yes, those things are all really cool. But we shouldn't do them just because they sound cool and just because you can get a lot of influence、mm-hmm. and power in them. We should be doing them because we're serving the American people, and I think that's what's been missing、yeah. from the foreign policy discussions that we have. As opposed to other policy areas like education policy, like healthcare policy,、yeah. like in those areas is like education is about students and teachers. Like healthcare is about people who are sick and people's livelihood and their security. But when we move on to the foreign policy field, it doesn't feel very human centered, and I kind of worry about that because at the end of the day, all. These policies should be to serve the American people, yeah, and it should be public service. It shouldn't be these abstract things about like the U.S. and its position in the world, and like who is going to be better than who in this like international sphere. Like it needs to be how will these policies affect the American people, and I think that is what's been frustrating. Um, is that it's not the discussions to me. I feel like haven't been too humans haven't been very human centered, and I think I'm you know guilty of this too. When you're talking about these like great power competition, you really forget who you're trying to serve. So I think that's that's one thing that's、yeah. been frustrating, and I don't know how to 
you know, and I'm thinking about how I can address address this and put more people to make our minds think like, okay, this policy will benefit the American people or this policy will hurt the American people. And which groups of Americans are they specifically harming or benefiting? Um, So that's one thing. I think the other thing is that there's very little talk about human rights. And yes, I understand that there is a limit to how much we can do in human rights abroad. But I think as we compete more with the U.S., I mean with China, and as our resources become more similarly abundant, the difference that the U.S. is going to have as opposed to China is going to be our values Mm. and what we push for. And I think if we just kind of take it as, oh, like we're realists, like we're not going to, there's nothing we can do abroad and there's nothing we can do in the circumstances, then like, how are we different from China? So I definitely wish there's more human rights topics within the talk of national security and foreign policy. I I think that's a great point. Um, And making those connections a lot more tangible for a lot of people. Are there specific human rights issues you're interested in or just sort of more broadly? Um, so I would say right now I am most worried about the Uyghurs. Um, they're an ethnic Muslim group yeah. in Xinjiang, like a semi-autonomous region in China. I don't understand why, like, no, like there's no news coverage. There's very little news coverage. Um, kind of to put things in perspective, most of the male population within the Uyghurs are in concentration camps or what they call re-education camps, like what the Chinese government calls it. And that's really frightening. And the Chinese government is putting in all these very sophisticated technological equipments there to monitor and control the population. Mm. Um, And you already have a lot of of authoritarian countries being interested in these technologies. So that's actually what I'm really worried yeah. about is if we don't do something about this, if we don't address this issue, like, are we going to live in a world where it is like 1984? Yeah. You know, like what the, the book describes. Yeah, that's the um, transitioning to more like cyber based yeah. society and just the technological advancement that's going to happen over the next yeah. however many years is going to be fascinating with in terms of diplomacy. Yeah, and like the implications of these technologies. I think what I would say is that no one should shy away from thinking or reading up on foreign policy. Like I know so many people who are like, oh, that's like so abstract. No one's going to work on this specific thing. Or, you know, I'm just going to work on my specific field or area but i think that foreign policy is completely related to anything that goes on domestically um and i think that people should you know don't shy away from like learning about it or advocating for it or talking about it because i think it's really important do you have any thoughts on what it would take for the united states to be uh, better role model for the rest of the world um, <laughs> you know because it, it seems like so often we sacrifice 
helping other countries and in turn hurting ourselves, like, you know, by refusing to help other countries, like we really are hurting ourselves just so we can have this like little ego boost where we feel more <laughs> superior, but it doesn't actually make any sense. How do we get back on the right track? So if we were ever on the right track. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that my professor Catherine Sickink said at an event, which I still remember, is that our founding fathers have always understood that the fate of the American people are linked with the people in the rest of the world. And that really stay with me is like, we need to start thinking about this not as like something that is domestic and something that is foreign, especially in like these days and age with globalization, like everything is linked together. Like yeah. something that happens in Latin America could cause a migration refugee situation that comes up to the US technology like surveillance technology abroad could easily come into the u.s like all these things are connected yeah. so i really encourage people to just think more broadly and to just kind of start thinking about these different issues but other thing is you know we just got to take care of issues domestically too yeah right like um yeah we can't conceptualize americans as having a yeah fate <laughs> yeah you know it's like if we care about human rights abroad, like we definitely should be caring about mass incarceration, yeah, and what we're doing to uh, people at home, we should be very concerned about concerted efforts to block people from voting. You know, which is the core of the Constitution, right? It's yeah, this belief in the democracy and civil liberties like those things we need to take care of we should make sure that people are not are not going to go to like the emergency room just because they don't have money to pay yeah. for it those things like we need to take care of yeah especially because you know with um all sorts of human rights um whether it's gender based or yeah. ethnic based um or just as you were saying like it, the insurance of a free and fair election. It's, yeah. We criticize so many other places yeah. uh, for their inability to do so, but there are a lot of places in the U.S. where yeah. people don't have access yeah. to voting. Yeah. No, definitely. Like, you know, why is our election on a Tuesday when people are working? You know, so many other countries make it on weekend or make it a federal holiday. Like, that. Like you should not have to choose between potentially being fired from your job and... Voting. yeah so yeah so this but but what i will say is advocating for human rights at home civil mm. rights at home is not mutually exclusive with right. advocating yeah. for human rights abroad like we have a lot of issues at home yes but i think how we present ourselves to the world and what we work on and what we care for abroad is also equally important and just because we are flawed in, you know, more ways than I can count, it doesn't excuse other countries right, yeah. from doing those things and does not mean that we should not be able to point them out on mm -hmm. those different things. You know, it, it's almost like people are flawed, but we can still expect the best in each other. Yeah. So it makes, it makes a lot of sense that, you know, if we sort of accept those flaws as a nation within ourselves like we can still do our best to yeah. empower other countries and um people to expect a lot of their governments um just as we 
yeah would hopefully spark a lot of ours <laughs> yeah and it's like just because we have this problem of mass incarceration doesn't mean we shouldn't point out to the world that hey china is locking up over a million people yeah in xinjiang right yes we're wrong but they're also definitely wrong <laughs> and it does not mean that we should not highlight and point out and make sure that we build a international coalition and that we engage with the world to address that issue yeah and thinking about it like it's it's not a zero-sum game yeah people people criticize you know individuals who want to get involved in foreign aid and foreign service and say like why are you spending all of these time and resources in these countries when there's so much need at home and all of this stuff? And it's, it's to your point, like it's not mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to ignore one to do the other. Yeah. Um, and I, I wish that was something more people thought about. <laughs> Is there anything else? No, thank you, you so make much a last again. Pitch for it to get people involved in the foreign service. <laughs> I would say don't shy away from it. Everyone's really smart. Like, no one should no one should be excluded from this conversation yeah uh, no one has the right to exclude any of you guys from the conversation the, the only way we can get a foreign policy that is more representative of american values and of actual like american people's interests is if we all start to engage in it and yeah. care about it um and advocate for what we think is right yeah, well, thank you so much. I've I've learned a ton. Um, I feel like I'm ready to go and help the world. <laughs> no, thank you so, so thank much you again so for having me. Yeah, yeah it's been a great pleasure talking to you. <laughs> awesome. Awesome.